Welcome to Phrenesis, a show dedicated to issues in political philosophy. Each episode will take a close look at important essays and ideas in political and social thought, linking them to historical and contemporary debates, which is to say, finding where they are discussed in the footnotes to Plato. Then I, I guess we should start out with, can you want to give a brief uh, intro to yourself, Emily, for, for all of our listeners? Um, yeah, sure. So uh, I'm Emily Davis. I just finished my first year in grad school at the University of Texas and at Austin. I'm doing my PhD in government. My first field is political theory, and my second field is comparative politics. Um, before that, I was at Kenyon College, where I majored in political science and classics. And I'm hoping one day to be a professor of political theory if the job market will accept me. <laughs> yeah, that that that's a big pro- problem. Uh, hopefully it gets a little bit better in the years to come on as you're, you're exiting your PhD. So, so your first year, that's awesome. That's exciting. We, uh, all three of us know each other from a um, summer program institute uh, we did uh, focused on political theory, um, and so it's a really good fit for for this podcast. And Emily, you chose today. Uh, you wanted to talk about of the most excellent men, uh, the essay by by Montaigne. Could you tell us what what inspired that? Why were you thinking this was the the right pick? Well, so I mean Montaigne wrote many, many essays. Um, he actually pioneered the art of the essay. He was the first one to write in that format ever. Um, and I did my undergraduate thesis on a comparison of Montaigne's thought to Plato's thought, which was a much bigger project than I initially thought it would be. <laughs> um, <laughs> but when you asked me if I wanted to discuss an essay on this podcast, my, my mind immediately jumped to Montaigne. Um, but then I had to narrow it down. I had to choose which essay I might want to talk about. And I have a lot of favorites. I've read a lot of them. I've written about a lot of them. Um, but looking at the content that you guys have up on the website, it seemed like of the most outstanding men, would be a particularly good fit for a thwart because it just has so much to do with what it means to be an outstanding person, what it means to be virtuous, why certain people are remembered for their deeds and others are not. Um, and it has a pretty explicit political connection because it's about, well, one poet and two political men. Um, and there are other essays that are much more sort of contemplative. And there are some essays that are just completely random, like about some crazy custom on an island that Montaigne knows about, um, or just some very particular niche thought that he's having. And so it seemed like this essay would be you know, both philosophical and practical. So it seemed like it would be a good fit for you guys. Yeah, yeah, that I I think it is. You maybe you should be the one running this show, Emily. That was, um, yeah. I so Will, I think you probably have um, more of a background with Montaigne than I do between the two of us. What what were your first thoughts? revisiting this reading through it i think the thing that so this is the first time i had read this before and uh, hmm. i i've you know been equated with montaigne as a, a a basically modern thinker uh and in in the sense that he's one of the first uh like modernly introspective thinkers um who uh, you know a lot of what he does is kind of plumb the depths of himself uh, which is 
not quite something that you saw before the modern turn in philosophy. Um, and the one thing that struck me about uh, this essay in particular um, is how much he uh, seems to esteem the very non-modern idea of uh, you know gl glory or honor um, and and it's it's very striking that uh, none of the most excellent men that he names are uh, a anyone you know who's uh, existed for you know for him like 2,000 years uh, or anyone Christian um, and when when we think about you know what what kind of did in the honor ethic uh you know one of the uh you know one of the primary reasons for that is that christianity did it in uh and and when montaigne points to excellence he seems to point to something pre-christian i think emily can probably explain that better than me but uh that's that's what struck me especially like the first time i went through this yeah, I mean, that is, it definitely is a striking thing about this essay that he, he talks so much about, about honor and glory. And I mean, it's also true that, I mean, I would expect, because he talks so much about philosophy in the essays, um, he has so much to do with Socrates and Plato. And I mean, he doesn't necessarily agree with everything they say, um, but they are central figures in many of his essays that he chooses to pivot away from the most explicitly contemplative people when he talks about the most outstanding people. And I mean, you would think that some sort of philosopher or like Will said, even some sort of Christian thinker would be involved, um, but none of them are. I mean, of course, Homer is a poet, so he wasn't necessarily involved with politics, but he certainly wasn't a philosopher in the way that Socrates and Plato were. Um, so, so yeah, it definitely is interesting that he he focuses mostly on political men and people who were concerned with winning honor and glory for themselves, because I think you can probably say that about Homer as well. I mean, people who were very concerned with leaving behind a legacy, being remembered, doing the greatest deeds that they possibly could in order to win for themselves the greatest possible esteem. I, I think we should um, make mention uh, at this point who the three most excellent men are that Montaigne's referring to. The first being Homer, the second, Alexander the Great, and the third was someone I'm not very familiar with, uh, Epaminondas, a, a general for, uh, from Thebes, a general and politician. So they all three of them are Greeks. Greeks with a very keen political sense uh, about them uh, and who really have inspired generations and generations in following. And, and I, I think you're, you're right, and it is an interesting, Emily, that Socrates isn't one of these three great men, but Montaigne does describe Epaminondas as being a philosopher perhaps more excellent in his thought than, than Socrates. And as a, like the last of the great Pythagoreans, an excellent orator, an excellent thinker, and a brave, brave man. Um, so it's, it is interesting three people to choose. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, it, it struck me as well. I, I found it almost shocking that he, basically raises Epaminondas, who, like you say, is 
is not well known at all. I mean, when I first read this essay, I had no idea who Epaminondas was. Um, but that he basically raises him above Socrates because he says he yields to no philosopher, not even to Socrates. Um, and that's, that's quite a bold move to make. So of the three Homer's, um, you know, the outlier in that uh, he wasn't a directly political person. Um, you know, he never, uh, you know, wielded political power in the traditional sense. But what's interesting to me is why Montaigne picks Homer over, he names three other people who were equals to him in certain ways. Uh, so he says that Aristotle and Varro, for example, uh, were probably as learned as he. And he says that Virgil was probably equal to him in his own art. So he doesn't praise him for being uh, the, the most learned or for being the greatest poet. Um, yeah, he's still greater than if we were to come into this uh, you know, with expectations of what someone at Montaigne's time would list as an excellent man, I would say that Aristotle and Virgil would uh, seem likelier to me than uh, would Homer. Uh, and yet he, you know, either, uh, you know, Homer is uh, better than each of them because he combines learnedness and poetry into one thing, or he has some trait even greater than that that none of them have. Um, and I don't, Emily, do you have a um, you know an idea of what that what that might be? What what it is that makes uh, you know, Homer more excellent than? people we would expect and people who Montaigne grants are equal to him in some really important aspects? I think that Montaigne sees Homer as more of a godlike figure than, than the other people that he compares Homer to. Um, because, you know, even though Homer was not explicitly political, the stories that he tells of politics and war literally become the foundation of the societies that come to exist after him. And I mean, you know, none of us believe in the gods that Homer created anymore. Um, but we still have a sense of just how all important Homer was, especially to the people of his time, um, and how important he still is today. And so in a way, I mean, even though Homer wasn't a legislator, he created a society and he created a world. He created the myths that formed the basis of the laws and political customs that came to be in the Greek world and were handed down after that. Um, and like Montaigne says, I suppose you could say something sort of similar to that about the other people that Montaigne compares Homer to, but not really. I mean, we don't refer to anyone in the way that we refer to Homer, and we don't see anyone as the same kind of creator as we see Homer to be. So I think that's why Montaigne finds him the most impressive of everyone else, because it's just clear that he was the most influential. Part, part of how we, how we read this is thinking of what excellence is, then you know, maybe the first you know, after reading about why he thinks Homer is excellent, uh, you know, our, our first running definition is the size of the influence, how integral someone is to, um, you know, the, the tradition that 
follows them uh, or the great in their own right figures that, you know, like you said, rest on the foundation that you've erected? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would definitely agree with that. Um, But I also think it's interesting that, I mean, I think that this, there's a lot in this essay and it's much more complicated than it appears on the first reading. Um, because he does say that, that Epaminondas is the most outstanding of them. So, I mean, you know, he praises Homer and Alexander quite a bit for, I think, I think you're right, for just the incredible influence they had, the way they shaped politics, society, culture, the way they literally changed everything about the world that they inhabited and the, the honor and glory that they won from that. Um, but the man he says is the most outstanding is someone who certainly a modern reader would have no idea who it was. I, I don't think that was the case though i i i think um so sort of the the story of it is um alexander the great the so after epaminondas's passing and while he was still a hero uh in the various greek city states uh the people of thebes had heard that alexander the great had been assassinated, so they tried to revolt and, and overthrow his his successor's rule. And then Alexander went to Thebes and utterly destroyed the city and, and everything in it. I, I think slaughtered and enslaved everyone there. Uh, presumably would have destroyed uh, the statues or, or, or tomb of Epaminondas. Like, just leveled it. And I, I think... I I think Epaminondas was kind of lost to to history to memory after that. Uh, he was written about by Plutarch and some others, but I don't think any of the accounts uh, from Plutarch's lives uh, of Epaminondas survive. So it, I don't know how much historical or archaeological record there is about his life extant, and I really am doubtful that there was that much in Montaigne's time. I think the one, the one question that I don't know the answer to, but if the answer, depending on the answer is, um, is he discussed in Plutarch? Mm-hmm. He is. Yeah. Then, well then in that, in that case, I assume that there was at least an awareness of him among some people, uh, given the, you know, uh, revival of Plutarch during the Renaissance. Mm-hmm. I, I think the account of, of Plutarch's account of him was lost as well, though. That, oh, okay. uh, yeah, I, I don't know that, that, that's something that'd require more research. Obviously not all of it, but we know that he was in Plutarch, but, I, I don't think the full accounting of his life survived. So so he's this mysterious figure. I, I probably more mysterious to us than to Montaigne, but I I can't imagine that much more to to the people of Montaigne's time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I mean, it's interesting reading the essay because you go through it and you read about Homer and Alexander. And I mean, they are, they're pretty obvious choices. I mean, like Montaigne said, you could make arguments for other people, but you can see why he would be arguing for Homer and Alexander. Um, And then you get to Epaminondas. And I mean, until you start reading about him, it's almost like it's kind of anticlimactic because you're like, oh, who's this guy? I have no idea who that is how could he be one of the most outstanding men? Um, But then Montaigne raises him above the other people, despite the fact that 
he wasn't able to have the same level of influence and didn't win the same level of glory as Homer and Alexander. I mean, it seems, you know, the Greeks did him the honor of naming him the first man among them, Montaigne says. So during his time, yes, he certainly had a ton of glory and he obviously performed in extraordinary ways in battle and was clearly a very learned man as well. Um, but he just hasn't had the same reach as Homer and Alexander. And if what you guys are saying is true, which I'm sure it is, then Montaigne knew that. And he knew that the people who were reading him wouldn't really know who Epidemondus was. So it's interesting to consider why he he puts Epimenondas at the end, um, because it seems like he's sort of contradicting himself or undermining the big tenet of being outstanding that he presented at the beginning. I I th- I think the last line is is pretty interesting he's uh, Montaigne's describing Epaminondas um where's a good point to start it but, but that victory like a shadow attended him wherever he went and indeed the prosperity of his country as being from him derived died with him so uh, with with the death of Epaminondas so too came came the death of Thebes like he he was the only thing Keeping them victorious, prosperous, safe. I, and in, I think maybe pertinent biographical fact, I, Epaminondas didn't have any children. And, and he was criticized for it at, at the time for not providing uh, leaders that could continue to rule the city. And he said, and he said, my, um, something to the effect of, uh my daughters are are my many conquests conquests which will live till the end of time or far beyond beyond my own life i the, maybe there's something to to sort of the disappearance the death of, of everything he accomplished that is that montaigne thinks is impressive or, or maybe that that Epaminondas isn't too worried about the legacy, so much as the accomplishments in and of its, in and of themselves. I I'm not really sure what to make of all that. Yeah, there is a part. It's interesting that you bring that up because there is there's this one sentence um, at the beginning of his discussion of Epaminondas, like right at the beginning, right after he says his name for the first time. Um, and my translation may be a little different than yours, but he says, of glory, he has not anywhere near so much as others, nor is it a part of the substance of the thing. And I always found that to be a sort of vague and very general sentence. I mean, what does it mean to say, nor is it a part of the substance of the thing? And so, I mean, what I make of it right now is that at least for Epaminondas, honor and glory was not the main thing for him. Like you said, Brad, like he he considered other virtues, I suppose, more highly than esteem. Emily, could you continue and finish off that sentence? Reread it, please. Of glory, he has not anywhere near so much as others, nor is it a part of the substance of the thing. Is that where it ends in your translation? Yeah. Okay. So, So the one I have continues, of valor and resolution, not of that sort which is pushed on by ambition, but of that which wisdom and reason can plant in a regular soul, he had all that could be imagined. And, and I, I think you're absolutely right about picking up that first part, that 
what the substance of the thing is is really strange and interesting. I perhaps there's something to it about him being a regular soul. Uh, maybe Alexander and Homer are more than just regular souls. They're heroic souls. They're greats. But maybe Epaminondas just absolutely dominated within his horizon. He saw everything, did everything that was possible and and was content with that, happy with that. Does that seem right? Yeah, and I mean, he does say, so he says later about Epaminondas, in this man alone can be found a virtue and ability, full and equal throughout, which in all the functions of human life, leaves nothing to be desired, whether in public or private occupation, in peace or war, whether in living or in dying greatly and gloriously. I know no former fortune of man that I regard with so much honor and love. So yeah, I mean, it seems like there was something about just the way that he lived in the moment of his life that Montaigne finds more impressive than Homer and Alexander. And I mean, something that connects Homer and Alexander for Montaigne, which is interesting, is that he says that both of them somehow went against nature. So for Homer, Montaigne says that it was against the order of nature that he created the most excellent production that can be. And then about Alexander, he says that he he basically went to the absolute limits of human nature. And it's hard to think of him without imagining something superhuman. So in a way, Homer and Alexander both defied nature. And if you compare it with Epaminondas, it seems like Epaminondas didn't do that. Like he he stayed within the limits of human nature and was extremely impressive that way. Um, so it's interesting to wonder if Montaigne, if he somehow thought that despite all of the greatness of Homer and Alexander, that somehow the fact that they weren't quite human or transcended human nature a little bit too much, if that's a bit of a detractor for Montaigne. Yeah. I, I, well, I'm sure you're dying to get in here. I have one thing I want to uh, say, uh, and then I want to get your, your take on this. I think, I think you're, you're right, Emily. Um, in an in interest throughout this essay, uh, Montaigne's making repeated reference to Alcibiades as being a very, very great man. And in some way, he doesn't make it to be one of the most excellent men. And I think maybe that has some value for us. In aside, I thought it was hilarious um, where Montaigne describes uh, Alcibiades uh, chiding anyone who didn't have a um, book of Homer's just as uh, people of Montaigne's day would uh, chide a priest for not having a breviary. Uh, <laughs> it's a, a weird, weird sort of remark, but definitely underscores how central Homer is and then how informed by, by Homer Alcibiades is. But towards the end, in the discussion of Epaminondas, Montaigne writes, For a man that was no saint, but as we say, a gentleman of civilian and ordinary manners, and of a moderate ambitious ambition, the richest life that I know, and full of the richest and most to be desired parts, all things considered, is, in my opinion, that of Alcibiades. Somehow, Alcibiades has perhaps the most of everything and everything that's most important excesses in every regards but still he's not as great as Epaminondas who 
doesn't seem to have that same access. I I'm sorry, Will. <laughs> Please, I want to I want to hear from you. I know that. Um, yeah, I I uh, I agree uh, that I I mean I I fully subscribe to um, you know how Emily describes Epaminondas being somehow different from the other two um and it seems to me that uh what so there's not montaigne describes how uh he um you know he was excellent within the the bounds of he says something like natural wisdom and reason can give a person but the deeds that he describes that are impressive to him are not just paired back versions of what Alexander and Homer did. They're different. Um, and that Alexander especially, um, you know, was a conqueror and a fairly brutal one at that. Um, and that somehow uh, Montaigne thinks that someone like him who is super human, uh, godlike almost, can do these things that it seems to me, by how he describes Epaminondas' good deeds, would be basically impermissible for a normal person. Uh, because he describes how uh, Epaminondas didn't think it lawful even to restore the liberty of his country to kill a man without knowing a cause. Uh, or that men in battle ought to avoid the encounter ought to avoid the encounter of a friend on the other side. Um, and and that the greatest satisfaction he had ever had in his whole life was the contentment he gave his father and mother by his victory. Um, that these are a different standard of excellence entirely, it seems like than what he would allow Alexander by his godlikeness, uh, or that he would allow Homer, although Homer's a little more of an imperfect comparison. Um, and so that if you take a model for action, it seems like Epaminondas would be your model. I, so I might be totally off base here and please correct me and make fun of me if i am but if so at the very beginning you talked about well how it's interesting that montaigne's talking about pagan culture as being so excellent and not not choosing any christians um could it be something in the lines of each of these three represent a different relationship with the the gods and rather that the Homeric gods. I mean, Homer being sort of the the creator of gods of the divine. Alexander conquering for for the gods and Epaminondas is the only one really obeying the gods, trying to live by the virtuous code that's set out rather than trying to be an exception, trying trying to do what is right and just and honoring his parents, honoring his friends. And that 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 sort of obeying uh, of moral codes, moral laws is what makes him better. Well, I, I I'm going to let Emily tackle that because it is I think she would know but the the only thing I want to point to before that is I mean he doesn't he doesn't talk about obedience um but but that's not something he says but he does praise that wisdom and reason that sorry that of which wisdom and reason can plant in a regular soul um uh, which seems to me less like uh, 
obedience to the you know the homeric code or the code of the homeric gods and you know more like a kind of natural wisdom because this doesn't seem to be the conception of justice that you get in the iliad and it's certainly not a christian conception of justice uh or you know goodness or excellence um but but the fact that it's you know natural wisdom and reason uh guiding him seems to be the key more than obedience but i want to hear what emily has to say about that um yeah i mean that's definitely brad that's a um an idea that i certainly have never thought of but i think it's very interesting um and something that i would bring up in connection to that is that when montine talks about epimenondas he talks about his character and conscience he says that as for his character and conscience he very far surpassed all those who have ever undertaken to manage affairs um and conscience is a big thing in montine um the he he often praises people who listen to their consciences um and don't try to as we've been saying turn against nature um and try to sort of force away the commands of their conscience um and i don't think that he he talks about character and conscience at all when he's talking about homer and alexander i mean he's not really focused as much on those traits as he is on just the honor and glory that they both want and i mean he talks about he talks about virtues that alexander has um but i think it is a little different when he talks about epimenondas um and i mean i would agree with will that it's more of a following of natural reason and wisdom than it necessarily is explicitly obedience to the gods um but the mention of character and conscience i think gives the discussion of epimenondas a little bit more of a traditionally religious cast than the other two yeah, I, I I think I was absolutely mistaken in using the word o- obedience, so obey. But maybe uh, the Epimenondas is the pious one of these three, ra- rather than trying to just be excellent to the greatest extent possible. He he tried to be excellent in a pious sense. And going back to to what I mentioned about Alcibiades, Montaigne, in the middle of the discussion of Epaminondas, says that Alcibiades was a gentleman, but was certainly no saint. And it seems that that juxtaposition, he's not saying Epaminondas is the saint of, of antiquity, but it seems to suggest that, that there's something like that about him. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, his, you know, the comparison of him, like Will said before, the comparison of Epaminondas to Homer is not as perfect as the comparison of Epaminondas to Alexander. But um, I mean, if, if you compare his deeds to Alexander's, it's just such a striking difference. I mean, Alexander did such cruel and terrible things. I mean, he he decimated cities. Um, he killed many, many people to achieve his goal and to win the glory that he won. Um, and Epaminondas is just a much more humane political man. And I mean, sometimes, sometimes people don't like that. 
I mean, when he says, when Montaigne talks about how um, at the entrance to Maria near Corinth, he had contented himself with, with walking over his enemy's body without pursuing them to the death. He was deposed for that, I suppose, because people thought it was a sign of weakness in a military commander. Um, but then they brought him back right away because they realized they couldn't do without him. So it does sort of seem like he, part of, part of how impressive he was was his ability to walk this line between winning glory proceeds to a certain extent, but also presenting a natural humanity that someone like Alexander was just not interested in pursuing. Yeah. I I want to make one more stab at trying to pull out the contrast between Epaminondas and Homer. And I think your discussion of following his conscience is really interesting. Is would it be fair to say of Homer that he's someone who who tried to craft narratives that allowed him to ignore his conscience? Is that what the Greek pantheon does? It enables virtues, values that seem to be not virtuous and very immoral uh, and praises those in a way that I imagine has to go against everyone's conscience and certainly it seems would have gone against Montaigne's and Christian Europe. I, being even more pious than, than we are today, I can't imagine not being disgusted by Zeus's flings and murder and incest and, and everything that's just so disgusting and, and, and wrong in uh, Greek mythology. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would agree with that. I, I have always thought, I've always found it interesting that um, the gods are really shining examples of anything i mean <laughs> it would be interesting to think about the the larger implications for the greek world that the foundation that it was built on because like we've agreed homer was the foundation for the greek world um all of its myths and ideas and stories were based on what people in Montaigne's time would certainly call immoral examples. So, so yeah, I mean, I would, I would say that's a good idea of the com what the comparison between Epaminondas and Homer might entail. The other thing and then I have a, another question that's not exactly related to that is the, um, how, how to put this, the, whether Homer was, you know, self-aware to the extent that he was doing what Brad is describing him as doing, which is that like the, the first line of the Iliad is to, invoke the muses to speak through Homer. And if that's how you think of your project, uh, of, you know, your poetry, and I think it's, you know, be worth taking him at his word that that's how he thinks of it. You know, conscious requires a sort of, uh, self-awareness uh grasping that you know yourself is the one acting that if homer thinks of himself as being a receptacle for the wisdom of the muses he completely lacks and that epimenondas doesn't um uh but but that you know he certainly like like brad says um you know builds a uh you know, system of 
laws or values that doesn't seem to leave a lot of room for a you know conscientious interjection. Um, but then the the question I had, um, and this is a, another question of omission, is what's why three Greeks and no Romans? And it seems to me there has to be some uh, some meaning in that omission, and I don't have a good idea of what it is, and I don't know if either of you do, um, but that again also struck me. There's such, you know, if we even just going to Plutarch again, there there's such striking examples of you know, civil republican virtue among the Romans, especially before the empire, and uh, he he mostly not only doesn't include one among the three men but doesn't even really entertain the idea except i think uh once um and i, I was just wondering what you made of that i think that there is something irresistible about being the first person to do something um I, for all of history, the greatest astronaut that will ever be is going to be Lance Armstrong. And, and I, I don't think there's any changing in that or any evaluation based on merits. It, it's the being the first person to, to conquer, I think in, in some sense makes you more excellent than all others. And I think that's something notable about the three of these. And, and he talks about this in in relation to Virgil. Virgil may just as well be as good, perhaps even a better poet than Homer, but Virgil's task wouldn't make sense without Homer as a predecessor. Ver, the need needs the the background of the Iliad the Odyssey to to make sense, to be the art that it is. And he talks about this with Alexander uh, the Great as well, that um, perhaps no other leader has been as universally praised for for conquest. Uh, he mentions how, I can't remember the exact term he uses. He, he makes a point that... Um, Muslims, even in communication with the Pope, think that Alexander is a hero to be memorialized and that he's he's influenced the world beyond just Greece, beyond just what was Rome, in part because he, he was prior. And I don't know if there's something like that with Epaminondas. I, I think Epaminondas in turn inspired Alexander and probably all the other great Greeks that we think of and in turn the Romans that inspire us. Maybe the, it's just he, he was the first one to be recognized and that, that's why he stands above. Or all three of them rather. Yeah, and I mean, he does mention Caesar in comparison to Alexander. Um, and at first, it sort of seems like he's going to say, well, maybe Caesar and Alexander could be equal, because he says that there's more of his own in Caesar's exploits, more of fortune in Alexander's, hinting that Caesar's accomplishments were were more based on his own merit and their Alexander's accomplishments maybe had more to do with fortune than we might think. But I mean, then he says later, basically, that the problem is that things didn't really work out for Caesar. So in the end, Alexander ended up coming out as as much more outstanding than Caesar because his legacy was just so much more unmarred. And we, 
we probably remember Caesar as well as we remember Alexander, but it's definitely not in the same way. <laughs> I, man, Emily, you should just run the show all on your own. You do a much better job of it than either of us. You want to wrap it up for us? What What do you think is the key takeaway from of the most most uh, excellent men? What? Oh gosh. Well, I mean, I would say my key takeaway is that the people the people that we remember the most, and the people that we are initially inclined to think are the most outstanding and the most virtuous men are the ones who have gained enough honor and glory and who have had enough worldwide influence to be remembered throughout the ages as outstanding. And I think that Montaigne recognizes this and he doesn't really question it that much throughout his discussions of Homer and Alexander. Um, but with the discussion of Epaminondas, he raises the question of whether the search of Homer and Alexander for glory and just their extreme ambition and sort of pushing against the limits of human nature, whether that might not actually be as outstanding at the end of the day as the virtues that someone like Epaminondas has that are more natural and more humane, even if we don't remember those people as well. Uh, yeah, I, I think we'll probably just send it on that. Will, do you have anything you'd want to throw at the end? I do not. I could not have put it better. Oh, right. thank you. <laughs> well, Emily, you have been our very first guest on Phrenesis. We appreciate you doing that. Um, thank you very much for joining us. I appreciate you guys having me. It was great fun. <laughs>